we had interference from a local Northamptonshire taxi firm mm. on our radio channel. <laughs> Nowadays, the radios are all like military grade encrypted, but back then they weren't. And um, and honestly, DC was getting messages about a pickup at you know <laughs> pick, no pick pizza. Up. Yeah. <laughs> and every wow. time we tried to call him in for a pit stop, he missed like two or three pit stops because. We were saying box, 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 and he's getting, can you pick up two of us from Pizza Hut? <laughs> <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Pit Stop Podcast. It's, uh, it's currently 11am. Mm-hmm. Probably yeah, this time we've ever done one. It really is. I feel a little bit different, but I'm sure it's going to be still an unbelievable episode because we've got another guest with us today. Yeah, bringing back the guests, breaking Formula One. This is a special one. He's got cool stories. He has. He's on an amazing adventure. I've got written down here, he's F1 mechanic alongside some of the greatest names mm-hmm. ever in the sport. He's worked in TV, radio. He's got a book. Yeah. And I'm sure he's done a load of other amazing things. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Priestley. <laughs> hey guys, what an intro. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry to get you out of bed this early, but um, thanks very much. <laughs> Literally crawled out of bed about it was an funny hour when ago. you said 11, I was like, okay, we can do 11, <laughs> but we're going to be getting up at 10. <laughs> We've set this lounge, didn't look anything like this, like yeah, 30 yeah, minutes ago. No, thanks for having me on. I've been following your journey since we spoke a couple of weeks back. I've been dipping into your stuff and man, you guys are, you're having the time of your lives, aren't you? I guess that's, yeah, that's it pretty much yeah. the best way to describe it. It's literally gone from like zero to a hundred in like six months. Yeah. And- but that's why people are tuning in, man. That's why people love it. Cause you're, you're living the life or the dream that so many people want to be living and you're yeah. doing it. It's great. Yeah. Cause like getting there and getting in the paddock and experiencing all them things is like an impossible thing to be able yeah. to achieve unless you like know the people. We've just been really lucky that people like you want to come and talk to us though. Well, if people like you didn't want to come on here, we wouldn't have a show. Yeah. Some of it's always luck, but some of it is you've made it happen. And you know, you're, what you're doing is you're discovering Formula One in front of the world, you know, so people are able to follow on that journey. And that's not a journey most people get to ever witness, you know, no. yeah. Yeah, most yeah. people, it's all polished when you get to Formula One, isn't it? And all the channels around it, all the, the coverage is highly polished and you know I'm not saying your channel's not (laughs) (laughs) but what I am saying is you know you're figuring it out as you go and that's great people need to see that yes it's a bit of a DIY approach I mean we're sat in our living room right now you've come to our flat (laughs) we're not in a studio but um that's the way we do it and I don't think we'll ever really change that's what makes pit stop uh, original. Yeah. I like the fact we yeah. do it from our flat. I Definitely. like the fact when we can say we've had the guests here. Yeah, it's yeah. a cool. And, but if we ever do them at the race, we can't like pod at the race because all the media restrictions anyway. So yeah, it's much yeah. better doing them here. That's great. Keeping it natural. But yeah, do you want to just tell the people a little bit about your journey, what you do and where you are now, just so they know? Yeah, yeah. So my uh, background is in briefest form. I spent ten years at McLaren. Um, so started off as a as a mechanic, as a number two mechanic. Um, joined the test team originally. So back then. In fact, you may not know this. Back then, they used to have a separate test team, which is a, a complete Formula One team in itself under the McLaren, you know, uh, organization, still in the same building. We had a, our own team of mechanics. We had our own cars, trucks. We had our own test drivers. And we would go around, build the garage identical to the way it looks at the race. We'd go to various tracks around Europe and we'd basically be running a car constantly to test out new components, try new setups, try all sorts of new bits and pieces that we dreamt up that we wanted to sort of prove on a test car before we put them onto a race car. Oh. And that was my job for the first year, doing that. And it was amazing. I loved it. It was a great introduction to the sport. And then within a year, I got sort of promoted up to the race team. Uh, from there, you become part of the pit stop crew. And I spent the next, well, nine and a half years loving every minute of it because it, dr- it was a dream come true for me. Yeah. And I worked, yeah, I was lucky enough to be there through some amazing times. It was, when I joined, it was Mika Hakkinen and David Coulthard. Uh, we were world champions as I as I got there. 
uh, went through that period when Kimmy came along. I worked with Kimmy for a long time. Wow. Uh, and then, of course, it was Fernando and Luis, Pedro de la Rosa. Um, we had a whole number of, of, of brilliant drivers, you know. And, it, and as well as the drivers, the people behind the scenes, the people that make up a Formula One team are so incredible and inspirational. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole thing was brilliant. Loved it. Straight away, right, you've said that you used to rebuild the tracks. That's something they don't do anymore, I Well, believe. not rebuild the tracks, but, re but we'd go to a, a separate track, or sometimes mm. the same track that we're going to race on. We'd go there a week or two early. We'd build our own garage, build a car, same toolboxes. It looked identical. We'd run for days, just lap after lap, testing new components and bits. You, cut, you don't get the time to do it at a race. Yeah. Trying to break stuff. You know, when it didn't yeah. break, that was good enough. It went onto the race cars. Then we'd take it all apart and the race team would roll in. And they'd set it up and they'd build their thing up, look the same. Do they still do that now? No, it got, got banned kind of, I think, around 2009 on cost ground. I mean, it's hugely expensive. Yeah, I bet. So when they were trying to, you know, make it a bit more efficient, the sport, they cut all that out. So, um, yeah, I only did it for a year, but it was a great introduction because it's kind of a little bit less pressure than being at a race. Yeah. But, I mean, my God, it was hard work. <laughs> you know, it's just there were no, there's no kind of curfew like they have now where yeah, you've got to yeah. be out of the garages by a certain time. It was all-nighter after all-nighter. It was mad, but I loved it. So the all-nighters are true, and everyone used to be like, oh, we were doing this all night. <laughs> Working all night long, yeah. yeah. So how did you get into the test team, though? What were you doing before that? Were you like well, out of college or uni? Or? Do you know, I heard, I listened to your episode with Callum, which yeah, is yeah. great, by the mm. way. Amazing. What a guy. Uh, but his journey was very different to mine because he didn't really have a, a sort of lifelong dream of being in Formula One. He kind of stum almost stumbled into yeah, it, yeah. didn't he? A bit later, he A said, bit later, yeah. yeah. Whereas for me right from being a teenager, I, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, I grew up living next door to Brands Hatch, which at the time, back in the sort of 80s and 90s, they used to rotate the British Grand Prix with Silverstone, the habit at Brands. Yeah. So it was in my village. So as a kid, you got Formula it One, yeah. the inspiration yeah. oh, right man, the, the Formula One world would rock up into my village and I'd see it. And so I was obsessed with it from, from a teenager. So I kind of did the same route that most of the drivers do. You start at grassroots level at karting, you know, you're going to Formula Ford and then Formula 3, uh, and you kind of work your way up the ladder. And so I did exactly the same as a racing driver does to get to Formula 1, but, but I always had this, this just intense focus to get there. That was always the dream. So um, you were actually racing yourself? No, really? I tried yeah. a bit of karting and stuff, but... Yeah, I mean, I thought I was pretty good. <laughs> but until you come up against... I mean, that's a good point. You know, when you're... If I go karting with my mates... I'm probably one of the best. I'll, I'll, quite often I'll win because I am pretty good. Yeah. But then you come up against the guys that are not just pretty good, they're yeah. F1 level. And there's a massive gulf between the two, you know. Yeah. And I've been fortunate enough to go karting with quite a few of the F1 drivers over the years. Oh, wow. And, mate, you think you, you just tuck him behind him on the track and you think, well, I'll just copy what he does, you know. I'll just follow him around, do exactly what he's going to do. And before you know it, he's gone. <laughs> well, see, we, we, we're really confident. I don't know if you've seen our interview with Joshua Bagembe. No, like I haven't a seen young 12-year-old kid. He's just won the national championship, smashing yeah. it. Wants to be Formula One driver, obviously. And we're going to set up a video. Yeah, we're going karting with him. Yeah, nice. which we're is going to be karting. hilarious. Yeah, it might be an eye opener. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be. <laughs> we're going to get slapped. It's going to be a big, big eye opener. <laughs> and then, yeah. So after that, when you've left that, what are you doing now? Yeah, so I left the team. I left McLaren after ten years. I left in two thousand nine. So joined in two thousand. Left in two thousand nine. So almost ten years. And um, I mean, I started kind of. Uh, I had no I had no real idea of what I wanted to do, to be honest, but I'd done it for 10 years. It's not a job you can do forever. I had young kids, you know, you're never at home. You're literally never at home. 
Um, so, you know, I've always thought, I've got to have something after this. I can't do this mm. forever. And then we won the championship with Lewis in 2008. And, you know, that's the peak. That is like, yeah. you know, you have a dream of getting to Formula One. Then you have a dream of maybe one day winning a race. And then you start, you know, I was lucky enough to be in a position. You start dreaming of a championship. And we did that. And it's like, my God, where'd you go from here? And as a, after 10 years and I'm thinking about the future, I'm thinking, you know, this is, if there's ever a time to sort of walk away from the sport or step down, this is probably it. While yeah. you're on top. Well, exactly. And, and, you know, you could go for more championships and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it was more about my personal life. My family life needed a bit more. They'd sacrificed so much to allow me to go racing for so long. You know, I was, I was never there weekends. And you, what you realise is all your mates back home stop inviting you to barbecues and weddings and stuff because they know you can't go yeah and you suddenly yeah. you gradually lose touch with what was your old life so all of my friend group was suddenly in this formula one circus and you start to think well you know that's is great and i loved every second of it but it's not sustainable forever particularly with the young kids and, and wife at home and so i made the decision to step away and i thought well i didn't really know what to do but i started writing about my experiences in formula one and what i realized a bit like you guys are realizing now I mean, I had a, a unique insight into the sport, having been in it. And so I started writing about my experiences of what it was like. And then this writing started just on a blog and this writing started going quite well. And one day the producer of the Radio 5 F1, 5 Live F1 broadcast got in touch through Twitter and just said, listen, love your writing. Do you fancy coming along and trying out and being a pit lane reporter for a day at Silverstone? Yo. And I was like, yeah, of course. You know, <laughs> don't know what that means or what it involves, but I'll do it. And, um, and I'll tell you the story quickly, because I went to Silverstone and I was only, I was, you know, I was quite, still quite young. I had no idea what I was doing. So the producers, I think, just gave me a microphone and a, and a recording pack and sort of said, like, get out of the office, yeah. you know, go and get out of our feet, go and see in the paddock who you can meet and ask them some questions. And it was a bit like the work experience kid, you know, off you go. Get out what year mind. was this? Sorry. This would have been about 2011 or 12. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I put on this kit and I walk out into the paddock and I'm very familiar around the paddock. You know, that was my, that was my home turf, you know, yeah. but not on that side of the garages because I was always in the pit yeah, lane side. Yeah, yeah. And it felt like this whole new world. And I walked out the door and I literally bumped into Bernie Eccleston. Like we bumped shoulders, <laughs> right? Bernie's only like this tall. And, um, and we bumped into it. And I had this moment where I remember thinking, right, I, can, I was terrified. I can either walk away, pretend I never bumped into him and never seen him, or I can stop and ask him some questions. And I had this little kind of conflict in my head and I thought, right, I've got to go for it. <laughs> so I said, Bernie, can I have a moment? And he stopped and he went, yeah, sure. So I asked him some questions about the British Grand Prix. It was probably a terrible interview, but I asked him a couple of questions. And after about two minutes, his people kind of grabbed him, pulled him away and said, listen, I've got to go. Off he went down the paddock. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, I've just interviewed Bernie <laughs> like, it, was, it was shit, but I just interviewed him. And, uh, and anyway, I'm like walking off thinking, my God, like massive grin on my face. Am I now a pit lane reporter? What's happened here? Anyway, I'm walking along and um, a couple of minutes later, Bernie comes running back down the paddock, taps me on the shoulder. He had no idea who I was, but he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, hey son, that was really rude of me. I'm really sorry. Uh, do you want to come and finish the interview? Oh, wow. And he took me into his motorhome, sat me down at the table, and I got like a 10-minute interview with Bernie, which no one ever gets. Let's go. And it was still a shit interview, but <laughs> I got 10 minutes with Bernie Eccleston. And unreal. I walked back into the office at the end of that first day. I was going to say, what they say? Yeah, yeah, they were like, who did you get? And I was like, Bernie. And they were, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, have a listen. <laughs> that is unreal. And that was, was one amazing. of my, my first questions. Like, what is Bernie like? 
terrifying. I've never known anyone <laughs> that's only as tall as my own kids who's that scary because yeah. he was the godfather of Formula One, you know. Right. All, throughout all of my time, he was, he made the rules, he enforced the rules. People were terrified of him. Mm. Um, but equally, I had a huge amount of respect for, for what he's achieved because he's built the sport into what you guys are discovering today from nothing, you know. For sure, yeah. So he was, um, yeah, he was a, a sort of almost like a godfather-like figure that no one really dared speak to. And that's why it was such a, like a moment to, to have a conversation with him. Because I'd, ne- I'd been in the sport for 10 years. I'd never spoken to him once. Mm. You know? yeah. I can see the excitement in your face as you're telling that story, which is amazing yeah. because we had a similar situation with Ross Braun yeah. at the Dutch Grand Prix. Oh, I heard Prix. you talking about it. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was like well, it was this moment. It good for you. I was a bit, I didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> I just, we saw him on the grid and I was like, that's fucking Ross Braun and went over to him and like it was literally five seconds of just like saying hello, shook his hand. Yeah. But the guy is a Formula One yeah. legend, mate. Legend. There's a few people, aren't there, that kind of leave you with that almost goosebump feeling like, yeah. is that real? And even for me, having been in it for 10 years, properly immersed in it, it was I was fully at home at a Grand Prix and yet Bernie still had that effect on me, you know. And, and from that day onwards, I got home after that first day of being in the paddock with a microphone and 100% I knew that was my next career. That's what I wanted to do. Mm. I remember getting you know, on the way home, phoning my wife going, I've, I've just found out what I want to do next. Because I'd been in no man's land for a couple of years after leaving the team. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you give up, like I said, you don't just give up a job, you give up a lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden I'm back home, all my friends are still on the road, and you're like, man, where do I fit in here? And I needed something, and it took me a while to figure it out, but that was the day. And since then I've, I've kind of pursued this media career. It's led into all sorts of like crazy directions and uh, and I'm doing all sorts of amazing stuff and I'm also still living a dream. I loved my first bit of the career. You know, that was the dream, live, working for a Formula One team. I dreamt of that for years, being part of a pit stop crew. It's amazing. And, you know, I thought I'll never find something that's going to sort of replace that, but I have, you know, so I love what I do now just as much as amazing. I can see exactly what you mean when you say like, how when you're away, it's so easy to get lost and forget about home. And because yeah. we've only been to like, four races but every time we're there i even forget that i live in london i forget about yeah. my flat it's, it's like being in a dream so it's like moment. being in a dream yeah. like, so literally. much is happening it's all so exciting yeah like and we've made so many friends out there as well now so i can completely yeah understand. and it's so fast paced you know you get there on a you know like a wednesday or a thursday when we were working for the team but even as, as media you'll turn up on a wednesday or thursday before you you know you blink and it's sunday night and it's mm. just flown by and so much happens at such a relentless pace you don't have time to think about anything else, you know? Yeah. And it is hard for those people that leave, you leave at home. And I, I heard Callum talking on the other episode about how, you know, when you've got family, it was the same for me, when you've got family back home, you know, for them, normal life carries on. And they sometimes, you know, want to call you up and have a chat. You haven't got time for a chat because you're in the middle of stuff. And it's really hard to balance that with a, you know, to keep a home life going and stay on the road is a real difficult mm. challenge, you know. And Formula One, unfortunately, is littered with divorcees because of that. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a proper relentless, challenging environment. You, I can't believe you've done it for 10 years. Yeah. That yeah. 10 years on the road, that's a long, long ass time. I yeah. find it fascinating that you did it at a time that we didn't really know anything about it. We've learned from a lot from Drive Survive because we watched that. And obviously it's very, Drive Survive is very different to what it's actually like being there. Yeah. But when you did it, how have you watched Drive Survive? Yeah, yeah. How can it, you yeah. compare when you were in the paddock and when you were working in the sport to how Drive Survive? Because it's so different now. There's obviously more people there, more media, more cameras. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, I always think back, and I and I'm sure everyone probably has these rose tinted glasses, but I look back and I think I had the sweet spot because it was coming out of the um, 
you know, at the 70s and 80s and 90s in Formula One, which were, you know, pretty high life. It was a lot of money. It was, uh, you know, glitz and glamour. You still had the sort of, um, you know, the James Hunt, the taily off of the James Hunt era where it was about sex, drugs and rock and roll <laughs> merged in with Formula One. And then you got into the late 90s, the 2000s, and it starts to get a bit more professional then. But you've still got all the money. So you've got the tobacco sponsorship era mm -hmm. where there was so much money in this My sport. My favourite era, man. Yeah, I think it was mad. So the, brand, so the Marlboro branding is unreal. Yeah, you know, I was 22 years old when I got my job in Formula One. This dream came true. And all of a sudden, I'm flying on private jets out to races and I'm staying in these insane hotels. The parties We haven't accomplished the jets yet, but we've done the parties. <laughs> we've done a couple of parties. We, we, we've had a taste of it. Yeah. You know what it's like. So I was like a rabbit caught in the headlights. You know, at 22, you just <laughs> fall in love I mean immediately that's insane mm. um so yeah so but I was really lucky so I got that incredible party life in the beginning and it was you know we worked hard but we partied even harder it was amazing um the drivers were the same you know I spent a long time working with Kimmy who was just the most incredible guy to work with because he was very fast on the racetrack but he partied so hard off it and he took you know we went along with him we mm. became good friends we had this incredible life together um, but then, you know, midway through the 2000s, things started to switch up and it, and it got more professional. And McLaren really kind of led that, I mm -hmm. think, a little bit. And this understanding of, of kind of human performance. And, um, and we really took it on. And, and we were the first team to really pioneer kind of looking at, uh, at human performance, not just from the drivers, but from the pit stop crew and the team. And, you know, we'd go off to the Finnish Olympic Institute every winter to spend a week kind of doing full biometric tests and get this full report on each individual about how our physicality was, wow. mentality, tailoring training programs to, you know, to give us the best shot of being ready for pit stops, tailored around our jobs in the pit stops. Mm. I mean, it was, it was Olympic level performance training, but for us, and I was just a mechanic, yeah. you know, but we realized and the sport began to realize after that how crucial the the people are to this business we spent so long spending all that money and time on the technical side making a car go faster and then there was this realization well hang on there's a thousand people here at this team if they're not all functioning the right way the car you know isn't going to get to its best so i saw that whole transition through the sport into what it is today and it was a great time to be involved because in the latter stages of my mclaren years you know i moved up into leadership roles and i became kind of central into leading that part of what McLaren did. So he became number one. Mechanic. Yeah, became number one mechanic. Uh, so did that for quite a few years. And then and after you that, doing that, when Hamilton came in, uh, so when Hamilton's first year, I was number one mechanic on what they used to call the T car, which was the third car in the garage. So I worked with Kimmy for a long time. Then I moved on to when Kimmy left, I worked on the T car, which was leading a team who the third car was basically today. You have two cars in a garage, mm -hmm. but then you had three. Yeah, the two race cars and what they called the T car, a spare car. And uh, that car had to mirror the changes of whatever was happening on the race car all the way through the race weekend. So that if they had a problem, a driver could literally jump out oh, wow. one and into the other. Mm. Um, so I did that for a while. Um, but towards the end of those 10 years at McLaren, I, I kind of moved into this leadership role where I was, was making, sure, making sure that the team was, you know, looking for human performance in every area. So trying to build the right culture at the team and all this sort of stuff behind the scenes that, that used to be called sort of soft, fluffy skills that we suddenly realised were actually a key integral part of making the, the best team, you know. 
Wow. Blimey. Mm. What was it like? We touched on it a little bit, but what was it like working with Kimi Raikkonen? Because <laughs> I don't know if you know, but we joined at the end of last year. Yeah. Kimi left at the end of last yeah. year. We've seen a few interviews where he's kind of very quiet, doesn't really seem like he gives much of a shit. <laughs> but what's he like as a person? Yeah, exactly like that. Um, so Kimi, I worked with Kimi for the longest spell at McLaren in, in terms of all, each of the drivers that I worked with. And, and with him, I'd say around 2004, 2005, he was the fastest driver I've ever worked with, yeah. hands down. And I've, like I said earlier, I've worked with quite a few of the greats. Kimi was the fastest. Over a lap, he could drag a lap time out of a car in his prime, you know, that a car just shouldn't have ever done. Mm. Um, and, uh, and we had some amazing times on track with him. He, he delivered stuff that was incredible. We never quite managed to win a championship. I mean, on two occasions... I think we were runner up on two occasions. We went down to like the final days or the final weeks of a championship with us still in the hunt, but never quite managed it with Kimmy. Um, but off track, as I said earlier, we had, it was a party animal, you know, he was living the dream. Mm. He was a kid who had millions of dollars and, you know, the freedom to do whatever he wanted. And he did it. And he took us <laughs> along with it. You know, he took us along and, um, yeah, man, I've got some amazing stories. <laughs> uh, there's got to be one you can tell. <laughs> some of which I can't ever share. In fact, oh, I didn't know what, I forgot to tell you, I brought you along a little present. Yes. Oh, let's Legend. go. So, what is this? This is my book that I've brought along to you. I'll write something in it for you in a minute. But Thank you very much. That's um, unreal. That, that I hope will help you. It's got some good Kimmy stories in it. It's, first of all, this is where I just thought of it. We'll have a read of them and then we'll tell people on the pod for yeah. our random episodes. secret world of the learned. F1 pit lane. This is so it's exactly all the good what we stuff. need. exactly yeah. what we need. It's all <laughs> the good mate. stuff from behind the scenes and that will help you understand a bit more of what it was like. But the reason I say it is there's, a, there's one story in there that I can tell you about Kimmy. It was um, when he left. So he was with us for quite a long period of time. And then in 2006, he announced he was going to Ferrari. And we'd become really close, like as friends as well as, as colleagues. We'd, I'd been out to his house loads of times at the end of each season. We'd go on a, a week-long piss-up. He'd take the, the mechanics out. And we'd become close friends with his close friends back home. Cool. Had this amazing relationship. And we had a thing at McLaren where whenever anyone left, whether you were a mechanic or a truckie or whatever, on your last day, we would, you know, you'd grab them, you'd tie them up in the pit lane, <laughs> cover them in, in crap from the week, leftover food <laughs> slots or whatever, <laughs> just destroy them in front of the, the rest of the pit lane. But one of the things that McLaren did, a little McLaren tradition was we had this blue dye, which is like an intense food coloring that we'd put in the water system of the car. So if you got a leak, you could see it, because it's bright blue, right? And a, like a thimble full, would dye a swimming pool deep blue. It's wow. really high power, intense stuff. Um, and uh, and so on the last on his last race weekend in Brazil, because we'd become good mates, I kept winding him up saying, "Mate, you know when anyone leaves McLaren, you're gonna get you get dyed blue because this powder. What you do is you sprinkle it on them, sprinkle it on them, throw a bit of water at them." <laughs> And all of a sudden, they look like a Smurf. <laughs> it's, it's serious. It's serious shit. So in his, last, in, his, in his last race in Brazil, before he left, I was winding him up all week going, mate, anyone who leaves, I don't care who you are, anyone gets dyed blue with this stuff. And he kept sort of brushing it off. I could tell he was getting nervous, but he kept brushing it off going, ah, you won't get me. So he, says, he says, I get helicopter straight after the race. And I just kept going, yeah, we'll wait and see, mate. And every, all week, I just kept sort of winking at him across the garage and he knew exactly what I meant. And he's just like, ah, fucking bastard. Anyway, got to race day and I'm thinking, I've taken this so far now, I can't back out. I look, I look like a right idiot. I've got to do something. So one of my jobs on, in that, at that time was I used to strap him into the car. So we're on the grid in Brazil and there's a moment, quite a famous moment in Brazil where I think it was Pele was giving a presentation on the grid wow. and all the drivers were there to, do, to see this presentation. 
and Kimmy was missing from the presentation. And he came back to this. I'm on the grid getting his car ready. He came back. Martin Brundle's there with his mic doing his grid walk. And he Good comes along and uh, he gets Kimmy. He says, Kimmy, um, you weren't, you were notably the only one that wasn't at the presentation with Pele. And Kimmy just went, yeah, I was taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a famous interview. And whilst that moment was happening, I was behind him filling his gloves up with this blue powder. So sprinkling this blue food coloring into his gloves. <laughs> I then strapped him into the car, give him his gloves he then puts them on and off he goes to the race. And it's Brazil, right? So he races with the blue dye. It's 30 degrees heat. He's sweating like a bastard inside oh his God. gloves. The sport was so much more fun back yeah. then. And so I'm now in the garage. First of all, shitting myself that I've just done something stupid here. This could go horribly yeah. wrong, right? But he's in the race now and he's running third. And I'm thinking, my God, he's going to be on the podium. He's going to take his gloves off, having sweated, <laughs> having sweated for two hours, like waving to the crowd with smurf hands. Yeah. <laughs> So anyway, he's, he ends up finishing fourth, right? So when you're fourth, you don't have any of the media commitments that the top three do. So he comes straight back to the garage, pulls his gloves off, and he's got bright blue hands. <laughs> and he just came into the garage and he looked across and went, you fucking bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but then, because he was leaving, because it was his last race, he then shakes Ron Dennis's hand. He gets blue all over his oh, hands. Shit. Ron Dennis's wife then the head of Mercedes and his wife. And all of a sudden, all of these big wigs around the back of the garage have all got blue hands. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, I'm going to get sacked here. <laughs> That's hilarious. And um, anyway, so Kimmy spent ages scrubbing his hands. He was really angry, but he said, I'm going to get you back, you bastard. And uh, anyway, the week after the last race, we go out to his house, as we did every year, out to Finland for a piss up. And on the very first night, what was his house like, by the way? Oh, amazing. Was yeah. it right up in Lapland in the, in the woods, you know, <sighs> amazing. Um, so we, uh, we go there the first night. It's all of his mates, all of our mates. We all get together, start drinking, and it gets to like two in the morning. And I'm so tired. I'm thinking, I can't go to bed first because I know he's going to try something and get me back. Yeah. But in the end, I just there's no way I can stay awake. So I go up to my room. Bear in mind, this is in his house, right? So he's given me a room. I get into my room. And I thought, I'll put a chair under the door handle just to be, <laughs> just in I case. I love you're doing this and give me right in his house. Just in case. <laughs> Within 20 minutes, I must have fallen straight to sleep. And I had long hair at the time, like shoulder length hair. So now I fall asleep. And 20 minutes later, the door comes off its hinges, <laughs> literally burst. The door gets smashed to pieces. <laughs> it's Kimmy and his mate. And they come bursting in there for this full on fight in bed. I'm wrestling him and he's pinning me down. His mate's got me pinned down. He gets a set of clippers and buzzes like a reverse oh. Mohican down the middle of my long shoulder length hair. Oh, and no. then, worse than that, cuts the plug off the end of the clippers and throws it out the window into like a five foot snowdrift. It's gone. The clippers are gone. And that's day one of a week. <laughs> oh, my God. So and that's day one. That's day one. There's nothing I could do apart from do a massive comb over to hide it for the rest of the week. <laughs> what, you didn't just take the rest? Oh, you couldn't. The clippers were gone. The clippers were gone. Oh, man, that's, that's brutal. absolutely hilarious. That's brutal. Oh, my God. This story so that was Kimi Raikkonen. I love those kinds of stories. All these stories in the book? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I, do you know what? I actually don't read, but I'm going to read. Because that, that's hilarious. I'll learn loads from that. Yeah, there's like a, is there a few picture pages halfway through? There are, well, yeah. I think there's a picture of him scrubbing his blue hands, actually. <laughs> <laughs> <Wait for that. laughs>
mate, I've got to say, these stories are absolutely unbelievable. I'm having the time of my life with this podcast episode. I really didn't expect this episode to pan out the way that it has. But yeah, this guy's an absolute legend. Got some amazing stories. Just an amazing all-round guy. I'm going to need some more. That wasn't enough. Like, I need another, you know, 30, 35 minutes of this guy. Well, I've got some really exciting news no, for you, you bro, haven't. Because you can find out so much more in part two. Wait, there's a part two to this episode? Yeah, there is a part two, I oh. must Oh my god, that's made my day! Oh wow! <laughs> Guys, we hope you've enjoyed part one with Mark Priestley, aka F1 Elvis. If you want to hear more of his stories, his tales, what he's up to, what he's been up to, please check out part two. All you gotta do is click off this episode and go and click part two. And whilst you're on your way there, hit the follow button because then you get notified when we upload an episode. Rate the podcast five stars. Let's try and get back up the charts. Yeah. Currently number four in the UK sports charts. Let's go. Would be nice if we were number one. So a couple more five stars. But yeah, go listen to part two. We hope you love it. And yeah, see you there. Peace out. See you over there, guys. Spirit Studios. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.